0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Centre Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, it's good to be back at Centre Street, spend the weekend with you. As Pastor Kent mentioned, I'm the author of Freedom Session, and I'm just going to put in a shameless plug for Freedom Session get that out of the way. Um, (laughs) Do I think... (laughs) Do I think you should take it? Yeah, I actually do. There's four groups of people that I think should take freedom session. Before we get into that, the, the youngest person we've ever had to take freedom session actually was at Center Street. The oldest person we've ever uh, ever had to take freedom session is 87 years old. And she's actually a facilitator now. She's down in was- Olympia, Washington, and she's loving it. But there's four groups of people that I think should take freedom session. One is young adults that are thinking of getting married. You know, I keep hearing at grads how people would say, I wish I would have learned this stuff before I got married. It is the best premarital counseling. In fact, you know, if you're dating someone, if they haven't taken freedom session, I'd think twice. The reason, reason for that is, you just can you imagine going into marriage and having dealing with all your relationships and any mummy daddy issues or failures or anything like that before you get married? It would be so nice. The second group of people I think should take Freedom Session is people who are married. In fact, uh, you know, the cheapest way to get a new wife is get her to go to Freedom Session. The cheapest way to keep her is to go to Freedom Session yourself. What what I mean is, you know know why people get married? Because they love each other. You know why people get divorced? Because of unresolved conflicts. And Freedom Session gives you a season to work through some of the unresolved... In fact, it forces you to work through some of the things you just don't have time to work through. Third group of people that I think should take Freedom Session, I forgot... Oh, I know. No, um, it's actually—it's actually uh, some of the white hairs, Uh, people with with white hair. What I mean by that is my age and above. Um, A lot of lot of us have gone through life, and we have just—we've never processed the losses in our lives, and we wait until someone dies to process the losses of dreams. Some of our families didn't turn out quite the way we thought. Some of us realize we made some mistakes and we've never really dealt with that and so we just carry some of that, that, that guilt and there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus but a lot of us feel condemned because we've never taken the time to process it and frankly, some of us have never learned how to make things right with people we've hurt. So so I would, I would encourage and uh, never underestimate the power of a spirit-filled mom or dad that's 62 years old that's starting to deal with it and writes a letter to their kids and say, you know what, I'm starting to realize that I put a little bit too much pressure on you, whatever the deal is. And then the fourth group of people is just anyone else. You know, <laughs> I think it's, it's a great ministry. In fact, I'm pastor of discipleship at a church out in Vancouver area there. And and frankly, in the next, uh, you know, we're about 5,000 people-ish. In the next uh, few years, we're going to take about 8,000, no, 8,000, 4,000 adults and more through Freedom Sessions, just part of our discipleship strategy. That's my shameless plug. We're going to jump back into the message. Um, Jonah, we're, we're actually going to leave Jonah for, for a week. And those of you who have been following the Jonah series and missed last week, you'll be relieved to know that he did make his way out of the belly of the the whale and at the end of last week's message he actually got vomited up on the shoreline and he's going to take a week off and get a makeover and he'll be back uh, next week. We're going to jump right into, there's a verse of scripture that a lot of us have memorized or at least have heard before and it has to do with temptation. And it is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. I memorized it as a new believer, and it goes like this: No temptation has seized you except what's common to man. That means whatever you're going through, you're not the only one. You might think you're the only one, but it's not true. No temptation has seized you except what's normal, common to human other human beings. Elephants don't get tempted, neither do zebras. Human beings get tempted. Okay, no, and it's, it's not abnormal. No temptation sees you except what's common to man, but God's faithful. Makes sense. And because he's faithful, he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, which you will be, doesn't matter if you're 15 or if you're 82. The temptations as we age become a little different. The temptations when we're younger are of one nature, but we're always tempted. When you are tempted, God will provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. Now, what is the temptation that that verse is talking about? Well, we guess it's the obvious ones, lust. Maybe gossip, dishonesty, indulgences, over-shopping, over anger bursts. We would think it's the normal ones, and of course it applies to that, but that's actually not the context of that passage, although we use that verse as preachers as a, what we call a supportive text. You're preaching on something else, and the word temptation comes on, so you just quote that verse to give people encouragement. But if you look at the context, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to figure out what kind of temptations is God talking about? So if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you'll find that that's where where it comes, the context. You'll find that the Apostle Paul was actually writing a letter to address some of the conflicts and challenges and issues the Corinthian church was facing. And he starts off in chapter 10 with a very stern warning from history. And he writes, "For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters." He probably would add it today that our fathers, our ancestors, mum and dad, grandpa and grandma, they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same uh, spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Let me explain some of those concepts, because what in the world does it mean to be baptized into Moses in the cloud? Well, the cloud was the manifold presence of God, who was leading and directing and guiding them daily physically. In other words, you woke up at 6 a.m., if the cloud moved, you knew that you were breaking camp. If the cloud didn't move, you knew you could go fishing or suntanning or whatever you wanted to do. You know, the cloud didn't move. That's what it meant, the cloud. The God was in the camp. He was leading and guiding them directly daily. They always knew what God's, God's will was if they were moving or not. Secondly, what does it mean to be baptized into Moses and go through the sea? Well, the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea was the Old Testament salvation story. One of the biggest miracles, right? So going through there, that means that you were God's chosen people. You were baptized into God. We would call these people the Christians of the Old Testament. So these were God's people. God loved these people. These were his chosen people, kind of like the Christian church today. And then the the last one is, they all ate and drank directly from the hand of God. In other words, they experienced miracles daily, daily, daily. Visible miracle. Every single day, a manifold miracle happened in their midst. God was in the camp. God was in the house. These were God's people. God right there. The presence of God. And yet, verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them. Ouch. He was leading them. He was providing for them. He was providing miracles for them daily. And yet... God was not pleased with most of them. Why? Because they were overthrown in the wilderness. They didn't pass the test that God put before them in the time of testing in the time of wilderness. I wonder how many of you here this weekend are in a season of wilderness. It's a barrenness You're not sure it's ever going to change. It's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your family. You did A plus B, and God was supposed to do C. He didn't do C. It didn't turn out the way you thought, and you're in a wilderness. Or maybe in your finances, or in your relationships, or in your work, or in your health. Maybe you're just in a state of depression, just not sure if it's ever going to lift. You're in a wilderness. I've had those seasons. My longest season of wilderness was four years long. Ironically, it was also the time that our ministry was growing the most, the Freedom Session International Ministry. I also want you to know that I wasn't always proud of what came out of my heart during that season, because in the season in prolonged seasons of wilderness, what's in your heart will eventually come out. And some of us in times of testing, we get to God, why did I ever trust you in the first place? And we begin accusing God of the one person that we think should take us out of the wilderness. If you got a, if you look at verse 6 to 11 and if you have any a basic understanding of the Old Testament you'll you'll know that the, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 was actually referring to that that experience the 40 years and the experience of Israel had in the desert from the time that God delivered them from slavery from Egypt until the time they took them into the promised land where he had promised them that they are going to be the most powerful nation they're going to lend to many borrow from none and it was in that that season of that that traveling from Egypt to Israel to the land of Israel And that's that journey was supposed to take a little over a year, but because it'll get this, because Israel repeatedly failed to learn the lessons that God had before them, it took 40 years and the lives of 600 men before they actually entered the Promised Land that God had promised. You see, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't hear any condemnation. However, there are consequences. There are consequences when you and I are facing times of testing that God has brought or God has allowed. There's consequences when we don't pass the test that God has before us. And in God's mercy, because his goal for us is not comfort but maturity, that's his goal for us, he created you with a plan, he created you with a purpose, he gave you spiritual gifts, he gave you passions, he gave you a temperament, he gave you a sense of life is more than just this, what we've got here. He gave you all that and he wants us to mature. Because of that, in his mercy, he will often bring about the same test over and over until you pass it. Why does God test us in the first place, though? To force you to learn things that you otherwise wouldn't learn in a season of blessing. Same reason why your, your grade 10 algebra teacher tested you. Why, why, why did they test you? Because no one in their right mind would learn algebra if there was no test. Why does your Shakespeare teacher? Why do they put a test? Who, what, you know, what 14-year-old boy is going to think, hey, let's hang out and read Shakespeare. It's not going to happen. They put a test there because for some unknown reason, they think knowing Shakespeare will help you later on in life. And I'm sure it will. That's my inside voice. (laughs) It's a test. And here's another lesson. You know, if you're in a time of testing, you you know, uh, uh, one uh, one of my friends, a pastor friend, I was going through a time of testing. I was just talking and processing and stuff. He says, Ken, during the time of testing, the is always silent because otherwise it wouldn't be a test if the teacher was teaching. And so some of you right now are in a season of testing and God might be trying to develop something in your life. That's the context of First Corinthians chapter 10. So when it says no temptation has seized you the temptation is to fail or give up in our seasons of wilderness. And because God because life is too short to learn everything by experience, God's actually saved these stories, put them in his word, and we can learn from them. If we learn what God wants us to learn, we might save thousands of dollars in counseling. We might save marriages, we might save families, we might save if we learn these things. But the other thing we're going to learn today, we're going to learn the picture of the type of man or woman God blesses. You know, I was preaching recently in, in Vancouver, and I just asked the millennials, I said, all of you under age 30, I said, how many of you would like God to entrust you with big wads of money, big chunks of change, big chunks of cash, a whole bunch of people put their hand up? And I said, why? Why? <laughs> We'd all want God to entrust us with a bunch of money and prestige and position, wouldn't we? Why? You know, if I was God, it's a terrible analogy, but if I was God, who would I trust with lots of money and lots of position and lots of influence? People who are going to leverage it for the kingdom, not people who are going to think that it's primarily for their comfort. Although God's not against our comfort, God's not against us having a vacation, things like that, but in, we live in North America and most of us actually think that every reward we get, every raise and stuff is a blessing from God for our comfort. I don't think that's God's purposes all the time. I mean, if God wanted us to be comfort, wouldn't he just keep the price of oil going up and up and up? I think so. You know, I, I've only watched what's happening in Center Street from a distance, and I know it's been a tough few years, you know, financially, budget cuts in Alberta. Is it possible, though, is it possible that maybe we, like the province of Alberta and Canada, sometimes rely a little bit too much on our prosperity than the Lord? Is it possible? That's actually encouraging because it is very, it is very possible. I'm not a prophet. I don't know. It's very possible that part of what God's been doing at Center Street, weaning it and leaning it, leaning it out, is because God wants to bring about another harvest, similar to the harvest that you guys have had in the past, but it's possible that he needed you to trust him at the levels we used to trust him, and I I don't know for sure, but that's something to pray about, something to think about. That'd be exciting, wouldn't it? So who's God trying to bless? Who's he looking to bless? He is looking to bless people and he's looking to use people who are willing to be tested, seasoned, and be trained rather than grumble. I want to review this supernaturally. God had just performed. Now, to get the context, he had just taken people through the, through the Red Sea. If, if, if Pastor Henry just took you all through, through the river, whatever river is running through Calgary, you know, you wouldn't doubt Either Henry or God for a while, would you? Well, these people were stoked. They'd just seen go through the Red Sea, miracles happening, God's in the camp, and then they got hungry. Actually, they got thirsty, and they began to grumble. Go back to Exodus chapter 15, that's where the story is actually birthed, verses 22. It says, then Moses made them set out from the Red Sea. After all these miracles, they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, they found no water. When they came to Merah, they couldn't drink it, because it was bitter, therefore it was named Merah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? What the people of Israel and we failed to understand, they failed to recognize, is that God had a bigger plan in store than their comfort. In fact, God is not primarily concerned with our comfort. And we, miss, we actually believe He is, and so do I. Because we live in North America, we actually believe that our comfort is one of God's top priorities. But if, our goal, if God's goal is maturity, comfort is sometimes in the way of that. When did you grow the most in your faith? Isn't it when things were tough? That's when I've grown most of my faith. God had a bigger plan in mind. In fact, what God's plan was for Israel, he took them out of slavery, he was gonna bless them so much that all the rest of the world would look to Israel and they would come to God through Israel the same way people are supposed to come to God now, through the church. So, that was one of God's plans. Secondly, God was going to use Israel to actually discipline the nations who rejected him. So, first, the first thing God had to do is to create in the nation of Israel a character that that would would, would withstand, that would be different from the very culture in which they were going, so that they wouldn't become part of the culture. And one of the problems of my life and in your lives and the life of the Christian church in North America is that we are so similar to the culture, our values are so similar. And we don't mean it, it just just incorporates us. And so one of the reasons God brings testing in our lives is to help us develop character that can withstand the values of our culture that are not God's values. So let me ask you a question. Forget, Forget the church part for a minute. So how about you personally? If it's true that God puts us in seasons of testing and if we fail the test, he'll bring around the test again, here's a good question for you. Is there a character quality in your life that God's been asking you to develop for the last few years? Is there a character quality that God's been wanting you to develop, you personally? Honesty, integrity, purity, patience, faithfulness, trust, calmness, humility, considering others as better than yourself, faith. Let's just ask the Lord for a minute. Holy Spirit of God, What quality in my life have you been trying to develop that I've been kind of ignoring? And if you knew that God is going to continue to bring tests into your life until you pass that test, would it make any difference? You can save yourself a lot of time and aggravation by leaning in and saying, God, okay, help me develop that. Interesting that God wasn't oblivious to the needs of people. They ran out of water and they complained. They grumbled to Moses. Uh, let's pick up, keep the story going. And, when, and then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. And Moses throws in the water. The water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. And there the Lord tested his people. There the Lord, he tested them, saying, If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all the statues, if you do those things, I will put none of the diseases upon you that I put on Egypt, for I am the Lord your healer. Why did God put the diseases on Egypt? Because he loved them. He was giving them opportunity to repent, to recognize that God is God Almighty. God loved Egypt. God loved Pharaoh. God gave Pharaoh 10 opportunities to repent. And if Pharaoh would have repented, I think God would have used him to establish God's purposes. He would have still chosen Israel and Pharaoh would have had to become subservient to Israel. But God would have still used him. And God doesn't want to allow some of the things that Satan wants to bring into our lives. He doesn't want to allow that. But when we continue to neglect that which he's speaking into our lives. Listen, so important. If you hear God's voice today, don't harden your heart like they did in the rebellion. That's from Hebrews. It comes out of this story. Whenever God speaks to you, there's a real danger. A real spiritual danger if we harden our heart and ignore that. Our prayers aren't effective. We probably can't discern the will of God because this is the will of God that we're ignoring. And again, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What did God want the people to do instead of grumble? Trust and ask God, what do you want us to do? And then if you read the story, so, that's that, so uh, Moses put some, uh, a log in there and they got the water sweet, but listen to this in verse 27. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they camped there. Elam was a half, a half a day's journey away. God had already provided. He knew they would be hungry. He had already provided the water. Twelve springs, palm trees, basically Hawaii. And they settled for water that had the bitter water that made sweet. God had already provided. God is not oblivious to their needs. And he is not oblivious to your needs when you're going through the wilderness. But he wants you rather than to grumble, to come to him with an open heart. People failed that test many times in the wilderness like a few days later when they ran out of bread. Which brings me to our second test. Test number two is God is looking to use and bless people who, in times of testing, don't return to Egypt. There's some humor in chapter 16 here. you got to listen carefully so you catch it. So after that, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord and the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. When did Israel in Egypt ever sit around the campfire singing kumbaya, eating stew that was overflowing? If I was Moses, I would have said, Aaron, did we miss a memo? Did you sit by the camp pots singing kumbaya? Because I wasn't there. We were getting whipped. Did you see what happened? They wanted to return to Egypt, and they forgot what Egypt was. I had a 1972 stepside pickup truck when I was 20. That was a beautiful truck, but it didn't start in the winter. I hated that thing. I owned it for about three years, and I got so good at putting starters in there, I put in five starters in the time that I owned that truck. I could put a starter in within 20 minutes. See, I grew up in Saskatchewan, and it's not like Calgary, you guys get Chinooks. We didn't get Chinooks, so our winter was nine months long, and it didn't start in winter, that was a tough truck. But it was a beautiful truck. In the bed, it had these, I don't know if it was or what but it actually, actual from the factory wood bed, a paneling. It was beautiful. It had the flares in the back. We, we called them big daddy's, big boots, we called them then. Big daddy back tires. It had headers. It rumbled. It felt so good. It had turkey shooter exhaust, which was illegal, but it was okay because I wasn't a Christian. And it, was, it got like t- two miles to the gallon, which was like about a 20 liters per 100 kilometers and all that kind of stuff. But it did, you know, it was beautiful. But I hated that truck because it wouldn't start in winter. And then I sold it, and then I loved that truck. See, I forgot all the bad stuff about it. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel did. In the time of testing, they wanted to go back to Egypt, and God is looking for people to bless and to use, and He's looking for churches to use and to bless who, in times of testing, don't go back to Egypt. So let me ask you what is your Egypt? See, Egypt, you started out with God. You started out, oh, God, I want to make a difference in this, in this life. I want to get my life pure. Uh, just, just give me the wife that I want, and, and then just, or give me the husband, or just get me through my education, and I'll serve you, Lord. Help me get this car, this, this, this truck, or get this house, or whatever it is, and I'm going to serve you. You get involved in ministry, and then things get hard. People criticize your ministry, and then you, you return to Egypt, and you say, why didn't I just stay at the back, throw a couple bucks in the offering, hand out, offering, uh, hand out bulletins, why, what was I thinking, why did I, why did I ever ask for this crazy wife or this crazy husband in the first place, you know, and you want to go back to Egypt, so you go back to your pornography, or you go back to fantasy, or you go back to alcohol, or you go back to work. Rather than dealing with the conflict in the kitchen, you go to work where you get your strokes, you know, mad in your, your self-esteem, or you turn to ministry, or you turn to food, or you turn to too much alcohol, or you turn to criticizing and blaming. What's your Egypt? What, what is it that you go to to escape pain or avoid conflict, or when you're bored, what do you go to numb your heart? That's your Egypt. That's your drug of choice. Some of the people on the video are saying, my drug of choice... What do you turn to? God is looking for in times, because in times of testing, we're tempted to go there. We know it's not healthy, but it's familiar. It's soothing. And some of our Egypt is actually just settling. We've tried the God thing. We tried sacrificing. We did A, B. God didn't do C. So I'll just live out my life and hang on till I die. You've gone back to Egypt. And Egypt is slavery. You think you're free. No, you're not. You're in slavery. And some of us have lost the purpose and the zest of why we started following Christ. Our first love, we've lost it. We're back in Egypt. We're still going to go to heaven probably, but we're in Egypt on earth. What's your Egypt? What should you do instead of grumbling or going back to Egypt? Well, you should ask God, you just ask God with an honest question mark. Lord, what are you doing in this situation? See, when we're in seasons of testing, there's a number of possible reasons. One is it's a time of testing from God. He wants to develop a character quality in you. He actually brought it about. Sometimes our seasons of testing is because we're living in sin. There's an actual sin in our lives. And it's God not testing us at all. We're just experiencing the consequences of disobeying God. Sometimes it's because of a foolish or impulsive decision. You know, on Facebook it said, I love this post, it said, um, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is I made a stupid decision. And here's something important because sometimes sometimes we're in debt, for example. We're in a wilderness of debt and we're crying out to God to deliver us from this debt. And we think there's a demon of, of poverty. No, maybe you just made a dumb decision. You borrowed too much money. Why that's important is until you change the character quality of your discontentment of wanting everything now, until you change that, it doesn't matter if God delivers you or not. You're just going to get in debt again because you haven't dealt with the character quality. And sometimes it's simply a spiritual attack. Sometimes it's just Satan trying to take you out. The question is, how do you know? You don't know. When you're in a season of testing, you don't know the reason. So James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. God can handle our questions. What he can't handle is the accusations. And we sometimes blame God for our wilderness. Why? Because that justifies us going back to Egypt. If I can blame God for this, then I feel better about going back and just checking out. Let's move on to test number three. Bit more difficult. Typically, when God wanted to speak to Moses, Moses would ascend the presence of God. Moses would go up the mountain into the cloud, and they'd have a face to face. And one one day, um, then, then then Moses would relay the messages from God to the people. Well, one day Moses is up in the cloud with with God, and Moses tells the people uh, tells God that the pro, that the people were promising to do anything that God asked. So God says, "Bonus." Actually, he said it in Hebrew, which I have no idea how to say bonus in Hebrew. But he says, "Okay, I'm going to come down." And what he says is, "I'm going to come down, and I'm going to meet them." So what I want you to do is go down and. Get Get the people ready. Tell them, for three days, consecrate yourself. For three days, consecrate means make holy. Three days, get ready, and in three days, I'm going to come. Why do you give them three days? Because if God just comes into the camp when there's sin, bitterness, whatever, he would have to take them out. It's the weekend, right? If God Almighty, in all of his power, in all of his presence all of his glory would show up in your living room or your kitchen or your office or your computer room or your car or your business on Wednesday. If you knew that was going to happen, what would you have to clean up between now and Wednesday? Is there someone you'd have to forgive? Is there an attitude that you'd have to repent of, confess? Is there a closet sin in your life that you'd have to deal with? Is there someone you'd have to forgive? Through the entire Old Testament, the people made a fatal mistake that we make often. So what happened after this? God gave them three days to clean up. He gave the Ten Commandments, and then he showed up. Said in verse 18 of chapter 20, when now when all God's people, sorry, all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid in the presence of God. They trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, "You speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die." And the, the, the mistake they made is the same fatal mistake that you and I make. We actually we actually want to keep God at a distance because we want to live our lives in two kingdoms. We want to live our lives and we, don't, we, we want the presence of God. We want the power of God. We want the answers of God. We want, us, we want that warm Campbell's soup feeling, the, the Holy Spirit moving in our lives when we worship. And yet we want to keep our vices. We want to keep our excuses. We want to keep our bitterness. We want to keep our grudges. We want, to keep, we want to be Lord of how we handle our finances or our sexuality or our relationships or our vacations or how many hours a week we work or whether or not we date our wives or not. We want to be in control of that. The only way we can do it is keep God at a distance. Because if God really answers our prayers and comes close, he's going to put pressure on the things that he would call sin. What God is looking for to use and to bless, he's looking for a generation of people who are willing to stand in the presence and let the fear of God, the holy fear of God, the healthy fear of God, not the fear of like you know, there's a lion and you know, like a little child afraid of a lion, but the fear of God knowing that God's God, I'm not. And if God and I disagree on anything, He wins and I lose. It's that holy, healthy fear of God that's going to purge us, purge the sin in our lives. Of a very well known pastor who fell into immorality, they asked and they interviewed him, and they said, When did you stop loving God? And he says, I never stopped loving God, I stopped fearing God. And the reality is, in a room of this size, there are some of us that are living in willful sin. And I'm not just talking sexual, of course, includes that. There's some of you who slept with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or someone else last night. Some of you are cheating on you know, your finances somehow. Some of you have bitterness in your heart. I get that. It's, it's, those are some of the temptations, and we justify all those kind of things. But God's looking for people, when, you come, when God comes close, he's going to put pressure on that. And if there's no condemnation, why does God talk so much about sin? You know, we hate talking about sin in the church. God loves talking about sin. You know why? Because God looks at certain behaviors and he knows they're going to be destructive. He knows certain behaviors, certain attitudes are going to hurt you, destroy you. So he takes all those unhealthy attitudes and behaviors and he puts them in this category and he just calls them sin. He could have called them pickles, but he just called them sin. Three letters so we remember it. And then he said, don't sin don't do these behaviors that feel good now but are going to cost you. And we want to sort of keep our hand in both kingdoms, right? We want to, we want to be able to worship God on Sunday but we want to keep our foot in the sin pile. And it's, again, it's not just this. Sometimes it's sins of things we don't do that he's asked us to do. And what he was looking for is a generation and a church, a people who are willing to stand in the presence of God and let the holy fear of God purge sin from our lives so that he can draw near, so that, he can, so that you feel the presence of God like you did in your first love. You know, a lot of us, when we became Christians, we gave up everything for Christ, right? And we felt him everything. You know, we prayed for a parking lot and a parking spade, and there it was. I'm not saying God's gonna do that all your life, but there was that interaction, that, that personal, we knew God was there, and we've lost it. Some of it's because of sin. As we worship today, would you let God bring that holy fear upon us again? You know, some of us, we ask for the will of God. We ask God, what's your will in this situation so that we can decide whether or not we do it, right? We've lost the fear of God. If you really want God to answer your prayer on what's his will, tell him in advance. You'll do whatever he asks you to do, regardless of what it is, before you know what it is. And there's a lot lot greater chance that he'll let you know what, what he'd like you to do. Trick number four is, uh, sorry, <laughs> trick number four. Test number four is a little tricky. Deserves a lot more unpacking, but I'm just going to bounce on it. It's, it has to do with leadership. God's looking to use and bless people who can discern when God has appointed leaders over them and when he is leading them. All through the book of Exodus, just like in Canada, I mean, l- criticizing leadership was a, was a national sport. They just love to criticize their leaders. I get that. And sometimes it's valid. Sometimes sometimes there's been abuses of powers and all that kind of stuff. But the question is but but on a human level a lot rises and falls on leadership in families, in businesses, and in churches. Why do we even need leaders? You know that you don't need leaders when you're in Egypt, you need managers. You need taskmasters. We need leaders because we're on mission. We need leaders because we're in a battle. We're in a battle. Satan wants to neuter your life. He wants to neuter your church. He wants you to live a North American, boring Christian life. He doesn't want you to be any different. He doesn't want you to feel and see answers to prayers. He wants, we're in a battle. That's why we need leaders. And one of, the mistake, one of the leadership mistakes I think Moses made when he was supposed to go in the promised land the first time, he sent out 12 spies and he brought, had them come back and bring a report. And two of the spies came back. Joshua and Caleb says, yeah, we can go in. We can take it. Ten of the spies said, no, we can't take it. And the people had a vote. And what did they vote? They voted to go back to Egypt. Question with our leaders. And, and Henry, Pastor Henry and Pastor Kent, they didn't ask me to come speak on leadership. It just happens to be in the text. But here's a Question. Do we want our leaders to lead or do we want them to execute our desires? Because when you put things, I'm not against votes, but a lot of times when you put things to the vote, we go back to what's comfortable, not necessarily what God's asking us to do. Let's forget the church for a minute. Let's talk about leadership in our own lives. You know, the people's criticism of Moses was understandable. It was wrong, but it was understandable. They were afraid. They, were, they didn't have water. They didn't have food. They were afraid. So here's a question to those of us who lead, and I'm going to nail it right down into us as men in our homes. When the people in your home criticize your leadership, when your wife's upset or your kids are upset at you, do you respond like Moses or Aaron? and we're not going to unpack it, but how did Aaron respond? He gave in to them. He gave them the golden calf. How did Moses respond? On his knees. He interceded for them. They were trying to kill Moses, and and Moses could have struck them all out. In fact, God actually offered once to wipe them all out, and Moses leveraged his eternal destiny. He said, God, if you're going to take all these people, then take my name out of the book of life. So the question is, when people challenge your leadership, or you're in the church, and people criticize you, do you criticize them, or do you drop to your knees and intercede for them? Because that's the kind of leaders God is asking to bless or choosing to bless. He's he's choosing to look for. Another little thing, I, I love speaking to men and I, I like well, actually, I don't get invited to speak to women, so I can't say I love speaking to women too. But but uh, women are just as valuable that I like speaking to men because I'm a guy. And uh, one of the things I always challenge men is lead in your homes. And one of the things I want to challenge us here, all of us men, if we want to lead in our homes, then let us be the leaders in terms of the purity in our homes. Let us be the ones that flicks the channel off of the steamy show, off of the steamy commercial. Let us be the ones who protect our families from what sexual immorality is going to come into our homes. And And what's not, every time I let my wife or wait until my wife changes the channel with the remote, I have surrendered my leadership. Another thing is, let's not just make it our goal as men to not look at pornography. How about we'll just up that a bit and take it on ourselves to create a generation where we are going to protect the exploitation of our women. 65% of the pornography on the internet today is, is sex slavery. It is not young girls who grow up wanting to be a porn star. We've got to understand, I've got daughters, I've got a granddaughter. We need the men to step up, and we be the ones to decide. And if you're a dating, you're your guy, you're dating a gal, you be the one to decide how far you're going to go sexually. If she's the one that's saying no, then you are letting her lead, and one day you're going to walk down the aisle, and all of a sudden you're going to want to be the leader, although she's been leading all the time. We've got a huge opportunity as men to lead in this, uh, this area, and we can do that. We can change the culture. We can help our young men be, be, uh, be saviors of our young girls and their girlfriends rather than exploiters and the other area that us as men (laughs) the other area that us as men can lead is by praying with our wives and i know we're stepping on toes there you know one of the big mistakes i made when i uh, felt intimidated praying with my wife and my wife doesn't make it hard to pray with but it's easier to preach to you than to pray with my wife she doesn't make it hard but i feel intimidated why because you're so vulnerable when you're praying For years I used to think sometimes I'd pray with my wife and then she wouldn't pray after and I thought, well, I screwed up. I didn't do it good enough. But you know what I learned later from her? Sometimes she just needed to hear me usher her into the presence of God. She just needed to hear my voice pray for her. And a lot of times we surrender that Man, we have an opportunity to usher our women and our daughters into the very presence of God. Now, one of the challenges for us guys, you know, our our wives generally pray better than us. They go to prayer meetings and stuff. What do we do? We lift heavy objects and spit. You know, they go to prayer meetings, right? They learn, they're taught. We're not taught how to pray. So for those, if you're new at that, this is what you do. You know, at 6 a.m. when your wife's still semi-conscious, just grab her hand and she's just in kind of that, you know, never, never land, and just pray for 20 seconds and then get up and go shave. And pray for something that's important to her. And then make sure you come back in the room so she knows that she's not sleeping with a different man or something like that. <laughs> but that's an area we've got to do. And it's hard. But it's one of the things God's called us to do. It's part of leadership. Lastly, God is looking to bless and use people who won't forget that in times of blessing. Oh, sorry, God is looking to use and bless people who won't forget God in times of blessing and think the blessing's for them. Let me say that again. God's looking to use and bless people who, in times of blessing, won't forget God and think the blessing's for them. In 2006, I was traveling a lot and speaking a lot, and, and I um, there's a lot of stress in my life, and my digestive system just shut down. And I couldn't process any food for about three months. And I waited too long, and I was losing weight. I don't have a ton to lose, so I was actually getting a dangerous spot. I finally go to the doctor. And he said, Ken, we're checking for three things. They all start with C, and the last one's cancer. And from your symptoms, if this is colon cancer, you waited too long, which is a really cheesy way of saying you're probably going to die. And uh, so I had to get my head around that. And I believe in healing, and I know God heals. And I also, but I have to look at my mortality. And I was sitting in my my backyard, and I was thinking, God, if, if I have to die, what's the point of that? I couldn't get my head around the purpose of that. And I heard God say in my heart, said, Ken, if you have to die, then teach your children how to die. And I thought, I can do that. But then right after that, God said very clearly, why didn't you ask me what happens if you live? You know what the answer to that is? You give me back my health, God. I can take it from there. (laughs) I know what to do. You give me back my health. I got my plan. I got my five-year plan, my 10-year plan. I can handle that. I only need you if I got the cancer. And we're all in that, right? Because we forget that God, get, when God blesses, he blesses for a reason. How many of you, last time you got a promotion, a new office or a raise, went to God and said, God, why? Why are you giving me all this money? What in the world am I gonna do with it all? What do you want me to do with it? How come I got this new influence and in all these people serving me? What am I supposed to do with that? Why? You don't do that. Why? Because you know exactly what to do with the money, right? New car, new house, new cottage, more golf, more motorcycle, whatever it is. But that's not why God blesses. God blesses you and I don't care if you got a cottage, I don't care if you golf, but are you leveraging it for the kingdom? And it's not just about money. If God's blessed your marriage, are you leveraging your marriage for the kingdom in any way? Or is your ministry coming to church? That's not a ministry. That's a bonus. And I know some of you are in seasons of testing or difficult times, and you need to be ministered to. I get all that. But I want you to understand, and then I'm going to speak to people my age and a little bit above. I'm not quite a baby boomer, but I'm, I missed it by one year. So I'm a tweener. I have no identity, which is why I needed to write freedom sessions for me, actually, just self-therapy. But anyway, one of the messages I want to bring to people age 55 and up, retirement is a 75-year-old North American concept that has no biblical correlative. I don't even know if that's a word, but it doesn't i in the Bible. What I mean by that, and I'm not, against, I'm not against you stopping to work for income, but you know what we've got? We've got this generation of people that are retiring early and then they're looking for meaning in life. I met for two years with two brothers and I love them deeply, very qualified, very educated people, and they had just retired, they had the money, and their biggest challenge was, what is my life about the meaning? That is so sad. And some of you, some of you have retired, and frankly, you're bored. And what we need you do, we don't need you to go back into the workplace, except if you like, here's, a, here's another challenge, if you like making money and you're good at it, and you don't need any more money, honestly, why don't you work and give all the money to the kingdom? Understand, when I reti- when I get to my age where I don't need the, the, the income anymore, I'm going to just keep working for free. That's what retirement is. And if you've got enough money, why not? And if you like making money. If you don't want to keep your job, you know what we need you to do? We need you to mentor. If you've been a Christian dentist... Then find some, young, some white-collar Christian professionals, some young men or women, and help them know how to sweat the balance between being a Christian white-collar person and not, how to balance marriage and work, how to be ethical in business and the challenges. If you're a construction guy and you've retired there, then find some young guys that, 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 that are building their own businesses and help them know that still take vacations, still date your wife, still do these things. Mentor people to become moms and dads. A lot of the millennials coming up, they didn't have good models. We need you. We don't want to stress you off. Forget the retirement. You don't have to work for a living. And you can golf a bit. But you know, vacation only has meaning if it's refreshing you from something meaning. And we've got this whole generation. We need you find some way in the kingdom. And and here's the other thing. Don't expect the church to hand you 25 millennials waiting to be mentored. Start by just inviting them into your home and just hearing their story. You find them. Become a Freedom Session sponsor, facilitator, or become a, you know, whatever it is. I don't know. But ask God. We need you. We need you to be part of the kingdom. We need your wisdom. We need your experience. One of the biggest mistakes, I got mentors in ministry. I never got a mentor to help me just be a godly man. I wish I would have. I didn't know how to be a godly. I didn't know how to balance ministry and marriage and kids and all. I made some mistakes that I didn't need to. Some of you got the wisdom that could help some of our younger generation avoid some of those flaws. Last thing I want to say on that is, and this doesn't have to do with my message, it kind of does, about the comfort thing. And I want to be very sensitive here. I want to talk to baby boomers for a minute. A lot of us baby boomers are going to inherit a big chunk of change in the next few years, and we don't need the money. We need a generation that's got courage to skip one generation of inheritance. And I'm going to be one of those. I hope my kids don't watch this, this sermon. <laughs> but when we get any inheritance, it's not going to us. We don't need the money. We're going to invest it in our grandchildren's education or whatever it is there. We're going to invest it in to help. And not just our kids, we're going to invest it into other young adults who are needing to st- establish their businesses and their homes. We don't know how. That's what we're going to do. We don't need any more money. We could use it. All I'd do is buy another motorcycle. I don't need another one. And, you know, I'd probably upgrade my car a bit, you know, but I got enough, and some of you got enough. And we have the opportunity. You see, see, we got this, you know, Christians are supposed to borrow or lend to many, borrow from none, but we've got a whole generation of millennials in massive debt, and they haven't been mentored, and they need some of our help. Don't give away our money to irresponsible people, including our children. If your children are irresponsible, don't give them big chunks of change. It'll ruin them. But we do need to think differently about money those of us are going to get a lot in the next few years. And Invested in something that's that's eternal, because heaven is a long, 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 long time. The only time we have an ability to make a difference in the kingdom and people's lives is while we're here on earth and our hearts beating. Lord Jesus, I don't want to leave this on money. So you've talked about a lot of things. Some of us are in wilderness, and you're just testing us, trying to develop character. I ask you to give us the courage to put our best energies into that character. Some of us, Lord, are in Egypt. We've we've settled. We've returned to behaviors that we know aren't healthy, but they're familiar and they're comfortable and and we've settled. Lord, deliver us from Egypt. Give us the courage. Give us the courage to dream again, to hope again. Some of us, Lord, want you to come close, but we've got hidden sin in our lives and ask you to give us a holy fear, even as I'm praying that you would come and give us a spirit of holiness that permeates our hearts and teaches us what we need to confess and lay down. And some of us, frankly, Lord, we're in a season of blessing and, and we're bored. We're enjoying the comforts, but we know that our, you call us to more and ask you to teach us how to leverage our wealth, our marriages, our families, our houses, our cars, whatever we've got. Teach us how to leverage it. Not, not what I'm suggesting, Lord, but what, whatever you're saying. Because we want to be your people, strong. And we want to live in such a way that other people are attracted to you through us. In Jesus' precious name.